Good morning. It's good to be with y'all. It's good to be with y'all. Peace be with y'all. Well, uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Garrison, and I'm one of the pastors here at Veritas Dayton. We're very glad that you're here this morning. If you want to open your Bibles to Jonah 3, we're going to be looking at Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Jonah 3, 1 through 10. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can grab one of those um, and turn to Jonah 3, 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that home and make it your own. Uh, You received a bulletin when you walked in this morning. Uh, Attached to that bulletin is something called a Connect card. Uh, It's on the very last kind of... um, uh, fold of the connect, of the bulletin, and, and um, that's just a good way for us to to get to know uh, get to know a little bit about you, and and know how we can get in contact with you and get you connected with what God is doing here in our church family. Uh, we'd love to be able to to get together, uh, grab a cup of coffee, grab lunch, something along those lines, and and uh, let you know what what God is doing here at at and in Veritas. Um, there's also a little space in there for prayer requests. We'd love for you to take that and. And fill it out. Let us know how we can be praying for you this week. Um, we, we count it an honor to be able to do so. Uh, our elders receive uh, those prayer requests, and, and we make it a point to pray for those things uh, throughout the week and at our uh, elders' meetings that we have monthly. So please take a moment to fill that out if you have anything that you need prayer for. Um, all right, let's dig into Jonah 3, 1 through 10. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word. Let's listen with reverence and joy. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would hover over us, hover over this word as it is read and exposited and proclaimed. And we ask that your Spirit would hover over us to the end that we would be saved and sanctified, conformed more and more to the image of your beautiful, wonderful, excellent 
Son. And we ask that uh, we would, by the Spirit's power, behold him in this text, see his excellence and beauty and power and goodness, and that we would be dazzled, that we would be amazed, that we would be stirred, that our trust and our repentance would be deepened, and that you would conform us more and more to his image through that. Lord, we're dependent upon you now, and so we ask that you would do this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, we've been following the story of this wayward prophet now for five Sundays, the fifth Sunday, and and we've been seeing his reluctant journey to the city of Nineveh. And we started with seeing in Jonah 1, 1 to 3, Jonah's um, original call, the first call and commissioning of Jonah, and his flight from this call. And immediately uh, after this particular text, we're faced with two kind of overarching questions in the entire book. What will happen to Jonah and what will happen to Nineveh? Uh, Jonah has disobeyed and rebelled and he has done so as a prophet. He is a prophet of the living God. And as we know, looking at the Old Testament, prophets are held to the strictest standards of obedience and holiness. And if they do not follow these standards, there are dire consequences. And so when you see Jonah's flight in the beginning, you're, you're kind of biting your nails. What is going to happen to Jonah? Like, surely he's not going to make it out of this alive. And up until this point, we've been answering the question, what's going to happen to Jonah? What is going to happen to this dude? Uh, God has pursued Jonah, uh, as we've seen, and his severe mercy, even to the point of having Jonah tossed overboard in the Mediterranean. But as we saw, this being tossed overboard, this, this reaching the point of, of, of almost certain death was an enormous grace to Jonah because it was in so doing that Jonah was awakened to repentance. And now as we've considered what will happen to Jonah up to this point, we begin to see what will happen to Nineveh what will happen to Nineveh. They've been in somewhat of the background of the story the entire time up till this point, but we start to see a shift toward a focus on Nineveh. But we've been wondering up until this point, what's, what's going to happen to them? Are they going to receive this word and warning? Or are they co- going to come to a fiery end? Are they going to, to meet God's judgment? Are they going to be destroyed like Sodom and, and Gomorrah earlier in the Old Testament in Genesis? Are, are, are they going to be annihilated by fire in the fury of our holy God. By now, though, we've seen the kind of character that this God has. We've seen the kind of character that he has. He is a God who relentlessly pursues this wayward prophet who loves him, who forgives him, who, who, who even rescues him from death and judgment. He is the God who grants repentance to the pagan sailors and who threw uh, the, the prophet overboard. He is the God who pursued them and, and granted repentance and forgave them from, for their sin. And he is a God of mercy and compassion as we've seen time and time again. And indeed, that's exactly what we're going to see here in Jonah 3 as well. We see a God God, who is relentlessly committed to getting his message of mercy to the people of Nineveh so that they might repent and receive his forgiveness. That's what we see, and that's our big idea for this morning. God is relentlessly committed to getting his message to the world. God is relentlessly committed to getting his message to the world. And so we're going to look at first God's method of getting his message to the world, uh, God's message of mercy that he's committed to getting to the world, and God's mandate of repentance in response to this message. God's method, God's message, and God's mandate. First, we see God's method of getting his word out to the world. 
Uh, Look at Jonah 3, 1 to 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now here we see a commission that is not unlike that that we saw in the very first verses of Jonah. In fact, they're almost the exact same. There's only one slight difference, one slight change. Instead of saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The Lord says, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And we see in these verses the the unwavering commitment of the Lord to get his word to the Ninevites. He's so committed that he gives us commissioning once. And then when Jonah flees, he orchestrates these magnificent events in order to turn Jonah around to go to Nineveh. And then not only that, but then he gives Jonah this commission the second time. He He has an unwavering commitment to getting his word to the Ninevites. But not only that, We see in this text, not just an unwavering commitment to getting his word out to the world, but a unwavering commitment to a specific means and method of doing so. Uh, Remember, we discussed when we looked at Jonah 1, 1 to 3, that some form of this phrase, the word of the Lord came to so-and-so, comes up over a hundred times in the Old Testament, which is fascinating when you think of all the ways that God could communicate with people. He could communicate by speaking directly, uh, although people in the Old Testament don't seem to like that so much when that happens. Or he could communicate by uh, writing a message in the sky. He could communicate in any other way. He could communicate uh, by putting it down in a book, and that's actually what he did. He put his message down in a book called the Bible. Uh, You should check it out. But the the Bible's presence in the world doesn't guarantee that God's message will get out to the world, right? It takes the translation of the Bible. It takes the preaching of the Bible. It takes Christians sharing the Bible's message with those that they come in contact with. Therefore, God's plan to get his message out, as is revealed in the Bible, is sending his people to deliver it. That's God's means and method of delivering his message to the world. Paul says just that in Romans 10, 14, and 15. He asks the questions, a series of questions. How will people call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? You see, God's method of getting his message out to the world is sending his people to deliver it. That means you and me and Jonah and all who have been called by God out of darkness into light. Now, I want to add a little caveat because I don't want this to freak you out. I I don't want you to be freaked out by this call on your life to deliver God's message to those who have not heard. You know, typically when I tell Christians that they are called to share the good news of the gospel with others and they're called to share God's message with others. Uh, They start to kind of fidget in their chair. They start to get an uncomfortable look on their face. And and I found that if you press in enough, typically this discomfort comes from two big worries. Uh, And and here's what they are. It's not in order necessarily, but here's what they are. First, they, they worry that they're not capable of doing it. And second, they worry that they're not good enough to do it. The first being a question of competency. The second being a question of character. They're, they're not sure that they're competent enough to share the gospel, or they're not sure that they have the quality of character that it takes to, to, to bear a fruitful and true witness to the gospel. And for those who worry about competency, it often comes because uh, they have a skewed vision of what sharing the gospel looks like in their life. 
Uh, what I mean is that when, when, uh, sometimes when God's people are exhorted to evangelism, uh, they, they think that uh, what that should look like in their life is uh, what, Jonah, like what Jonah does here, what like, takes place up here on Sunday mornings when I or another pastor uh, preaches here on Sunday mornings. They think this is what faithful evangelism looks like for me too. And that's simply not the case. Uh, like, uh, in fact, unless someone has been called to this specific kind of ministry, I would even say that they should typically not participate in a particular uh, type of preaching uh, that a pastor does or like Jonah did. And so I think that, that it might help those of you who feel overwhelmed by this call to deliver the gospel to those who have not heard uh, to tell you that there are really two different kinds of delivering the gospel talked about in the New Testament. And both are absolutely necessary. Both are absolutely necessary for us and our health and our life. As a church, uh, these are absolutely necessary, both of them. The first is that the gospel is delivered through declaration. The gospel is delivered through declaration. That's the kind of thing that pastors do, or like Jonah does here uh, in Nineveh. And then the second way that the gospel is delivered through uh, God's people is through conversation, okay? So this is the kind of thing that all Christians are called to, and it's really rather simple. That's not to say that it's easy or that you won't meet difficulty in doing so, but, but it's really a rather simple thing to do is to share the gospel with people through conversation, just sharing the gospel with them through normal, everyday, typical kind of conversation. That's what it looks like for, for parents. If you want to share the gospel with your kids, this could be as simple as reading the Bible with your children. It could be as simple as telling them about Christ's forgiveness when you're disciplining them. It could be as simple as teaching them hymns and songs that explain the gospel clearly. It could be as simple as teaching them through the use of creeds like the Apostles' Creed or catechisms like the New City Catechism. Or if you're wondering how to share the gospel with, with friends at work or, or, or in your neighborhood, you can start by simply telling a non-Christian uh, that you uh, are a part of a church and that it's a meaningful part of your life. That seems to, to start conversations up pretty quickly. Or maybe asking a non-Christian friend, ask them what they believe. And, and, and ask them what they believe. And not only that, but listen, like really well, listen intently to them. And you'll find probably that they'll likely reciprocate. They'll likely ask you the same question and listen, and you can literally just share the gospel with them. If conversations like that progress, a good next move is to possibly uh, buy them a book that explains the gospel and ask if they want to read it and discuss it together over lunch or dinner. Or invite them to church where they can hear the gospel, not just in conversation, but in declaration. They can see the saints. They can see God's people praising and participating in Christ. They can hear the gospel in that way. And you might say, like, what if they ask me a question that I don't know how to answer? What if they ask me a really hard question that I'm not prepared to answer? What if I'm not uh, capable enough to, to answer their, their difficult questions? Uh, and, and, and I would simply say, uh, there's this revolutionary thing that you can do uh, when someone asks you a question that you don't know how to answer. You can just say, I don't know, uh, but I will find out and get back to you. Uh, I, I will find out, and then you can literally go ask the elders or, or study the Bible and, and, and find the answer and then go back and, and give that person the answer to their question. It's okay to say, I don't know. Um, and, 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 and even, I, I would even say for those of you that, that have this worry, if, if you're worried that, that uh, you don't know enough of the gospel, if you don't know enough, I would simply say you know enough. If you know enough of the gospel to be saved, then you know enough of the gospel to share it with others. If you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of it to share that good news with others. It really is that simple. 
The second worry is, is often a, a worry about character. Uh, the, the, when, when I exhort people to share the gospel, to deliver the gospel, they're, they're worried. They say, I, I'm not good enough to share the gospel. I'm too big of a sinner and everyone knows it. I've fallen short way too many times. No one will take me seriously. Uh, and if that sounds like you, then I think Jonah is the book for you. Uh, remember what we've been looking at over the last several weeks. We started with seeing the Lord call Jonah to go to Nineveh. And Jonah gets up and he heads in the complete opposite direction. And not only that, but when the Lord pursues him in chapter 1, Jonah refuses to pray, refuses to repent, refuses to answer the call of God and and do business with God and would rather be thrown overboard than, than stop and do business with God. This man is disobedient. He's depraved. He's a delinquent. And yet here he is in chapter 3, verse 1, receiving a call from God, a second call from God, a second chance from God to go and to do what the Lord has called him to do in the first place. And not only that, but based on what we'll see in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah's repentance in this chapter and in the last chapter is really a partial, imperfect repentance. This Jonah guy, he is not the kind of guy that God has called him to be. He is not, he, he remains uh, not the kind of guy that God has called him to be. And yet here he is being called of God and being used of God in a mighty and magnificent way. And this is the way that it always is. God only calls sinners into his kingdom. He only uses unworthy sinners in service for his kingdom. It's designed this way. It's, it's on purpose. God sends sinners to deliver his message because they are living parables of the message that they declare. God sends sinners. He uses sinners. God only sends people who are in need of and who have received the forgiveness of God themselves. Christ came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He only sends people who can stand as trophies of his grace, declaring to the world that, they, that the message they carry is one that they've needed to hear and believe themselves. And so are you good enough to, to deliver God's message to others? Absolutely not. But it's only when you realize that you're not good enough that you're finally qualified to receive God's message and to deliver it to others. That's what qualifies you to be able to do so is you realize that you're not good enough. We don't want evangelists who are not in need of the message that they share. We want evangelists who know their need and who know that they need it just as much as the people they're sharing it with. And what is this message that God sends his sinful people to liberally deliver to the world? Well, pick it back up in Jonah 3.3. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days journey in breadth. And so it was a very large city, and that's Probably uh, what, what's meant here is not just like Nineveh proper, but the kind of district that it belonged to with the outlying villages and, and nearby towns as well. And all in all, it took about a three days journey to get through this mega metropolis. Just tons of people in here. Tons of people that God had compassion on and cared for and that he called Jonah to deliver this message to. And so Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now we should note here, uh, that this is not the, the entirety of Jonah's sermon, likely not the entirety of Jonah, Jonah's sermon. Many have looked at this text and said, look at what the Lord did with, with such a, a short and inadequate sermon. It's amazing. 
but, but as is often done in Scripture, the author is most likely summarizing Jonah's sermon, or perhaps he's taking a particular sentence out of the sermon, recording it for us here. So don't, don't read this here and start wondering why the sermons here at Veritas are so long and, and come up to me and, and ask me why they can't be more like Jonah's sermon. Uh, but even in this, even in this single sentence summary of Jonah's sermon, we can glean some insights on what God's message is and, and the good news that he's so determined to get to the nations through his people. First, we see that God's message is a message of judgment. Uh, this much is obvious. Forty days and Nineveh will, will be overthrown. This is a warning of God's coming judgment. And, and I, I know that some of us in this room might be tempted to write this thing off almost immediately. It's often thought uh, today that, that the message of the Old Testament is mainly one of judgment and that the message of the New Testament is mainly one of grace. Uh, but there's both words of judgment and grace, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul, uh, he's in Athens in Acts 17, 30 to 31. And he says a word very similar to that of Jonah here. He said that God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He has fixed a day that he will judge the world according to righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. And he's given us assurance of this by raising him from the dead. He speaks, of course, of a judgment, uh, not just of, a, of, a, of a, a town like Nineveh. He speaks of a judgment far greater than that of which Jonah warned the Ninevites. Paul spoke of an eternal and global judgment that every man, woman, and child will face. And if you're on the wrong side of this judgment, you will not just face temporal judgment like the Ninevites, like the destruction of, the, uh, of a city, but an eternity separated from the kindness and blessing of the Lord. In an eternity in the lake of fire, an eternal judgment. But listen, this word, this hard word about judgment, about the lake of fire, about Christ returning to judge the living and the dead. It is necessary for us to understand that message if we are indeed going to understand and, and, and treasure the message of the gospel as well. Uh, recently, I had an opportunity to, to share the gospel with this, this man at, uh, at the gym. I work out at the YMCA downtown, and, and I was there recently getting my bench press on, if you know what I mean, and... Uh, uh, and this man sat down next to me, uh, and he just started talking to me. He asked me some questions, and, and he asked what I did for a living, and I, and I told him that I was a pastor. Uh, and he told me that he had been going to church, um, and, and, uh, and he, he told me the church that he'd been going to. He said he ended up there because they have this awesome bus ministry. You go right by his house, and, and uh, they pick him up, and he, and he heads to this church. And I actually knew the church very well that he had been going to for, for some time. And, and I knew that it was an extremely legalistic church. They teach salvation by works, and, and uh, they, they teach a heresy about the nature of God called modalism. And so I, you should look that up. Uh, And so I encouraged him to not go to that church anymore. I said, you should not go to that church anymore. You should find a church that preaches the gospel. And he said, what is the gospel? What is that? And I said, the gospel is the good news of Christ's life, death, and resurrection for the forgiveness of our sins. We are all sinners who deserve God's punishment and judgment. And at that point, he interrupted me. I wasn't done, but he interrupted me. He said, no, that's bad. And I said, it is bad. But that's what makes the the next part so good. 
And I know that it might seem counterintuitive, but this message of judgment is essential in helping us understand the gospel because without an understanding of the coming judgment of God, we lose what makes uh, this, we lose sight of what makes this mercy of God, this message of the mercy of God so amazing. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it really, really well when he said that the essence of evangelism, evangelism means to share the gospel. The essence of evangelism is to start by preaching the law. And it is because the law has not been preached that we have had so much superficial evangelism. Evangelism must start with the holiness of God, the sinfulness of men, the demands of the law, the punishment meted out by the law, and the eternal consequences of evil and wrongdoing. It is only the man who is brought to see his guilt in this way who flies to Christ for deliverance and redemption. Which is why in Jonah's sermon, we also see a message of mercy. It's not just a message of judgment, it's a message of mercy. Now this part is a little harder to detect here in this single sentence summary of Jonah's sermon, but undoubtedly it is there. It's there first of all in the simple fact that the Lord sent Jonah to deliver this message. Uh, The Lord could have just sent disaster and judgment on Nineveh without sending a word of warning. But as uh, uh, the Lord, as as 2 Peter 3, 9 says, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance, he sends his prophet to warn of the coming judgment so that the people of Nineveh may repent. And not only that, but God's mercy is also seen in the amount of time given to Nineveh before the judgment comes. Jonah says that there's 40 days until this judgment is is to take place. Why the 40 days? It's because Ninevites, the Lord is giving Ninevites time to repent. He's giving them time to, to, to repent. The Lord was going to grant them repentance. And so the 40 days were given in order for the Ninevites to properly and thoroughly repent, and thoroughly repent they did. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But for now, we would do well to recognize that we face similar circumstances in the new covenant. Uh, we talked about uh, the, the judgment to come and how this judgment to come uh, when Christ returns is much greater than the judgment that the Ninevites were warned about. But so is this message of mercy. It's much, much more pronounced and better, you see, because we not only have a message of God possibly relenting of his judgment, but a message that, when, that God came down to take that judgment upon himself for us. Christ, the Son of God, come to us in human form. He took on the very judgment that we've been warned about in the New Testament. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that we should have lived. And instead of simply enjoying the blessing and favor of God that he alone deserved, he went to the cross. And on the cross, that disaster that should have awaited us, the the judgment that we deserve, the wrath of God that we earned, fell on him instead. All so that we could enjoy the blessing and the favor of God that he deserved. And not only that, but to prove that it's all true, to give us assurance of this unbelievably sweet and startling message of mercy, he rose again on the third day. And one day he will return to judge the living and the dead. This is true. And God has appointed a day for Christ to return and cleanse the world, to cleanse his good creation of all that assails it. But in his great grace, he's giving us time. He's giving us time to get the message out to the world. And he's giving the nations of the, time for the nations of the world to repent. That is the message that God is so determined, so committed, so eager to get to the world. And that he sends his people to deliver. And now, how are those who hear this message to respond? What are they supposed to do? 
God's mandate for all who hear his message of mercy is that they believe him and repent. As Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. As the Apostle Paul says in the text we just read, Acts 17.30, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And in this, Nineveh's response is exemplary. I pick it back up in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God. That should, that should hearken your mind back to Genesis when Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The Ninevites believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, even from the greatest of them to the least of them. And then we see an example of, of, of the, the word, the, the fasting, the repentance, reaching the greatest of them, the king to the least of them, even the animals. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered in sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Now, I love this because this is one of the best examples of a corporate repentance ever given. And it, it comes to us by way of these pagan Assyrians, uh, the enemy of the people of God. It's given to us by the pagan, brutally violent, immoral people of Nineveh. In Nineveh's response, we see the three necessary aspects of repentance. True belief in God, true belief in his gospel always leads to true repentance. And true repentance always has these three necessary aspects. They always have sorrow for sin. True repentance always has sorrow for sin, turning from sin, and turning to God. Sorrow for sin, turning from sin, and turning to God. And we see the Ninevites sorrow for sin and that they fast and they cover themselves with sackcloth and they sit in ashes. This may be somewhat foreign to us, but the affliction of fasting, the discomfort of sackcloth, the symbolism of ashes are all signs of repentance and sorrow for sin. That's why ashes are used on, on Ash Wednesday and for Lent. Uh, I know for fasting nowadays, we see fasting as this like dieting fat. People do this intermittent fasting thing, and trying to lose some LBs and get those washboard abs. But here in Nineveh, the people fasted because they were so sorrowful for their sin. Have you ever been so sad that you couldn't eat? Have you ever been so full of sorrow that you weren't hungry, that you didn't want to eat anything? That's the way the Ninevites felt about their sin and their violence. We even see the king of Nineveh trade his throne for ashes and his, uh, his royal robes for sackcloth. And he publishes a decree that every human and animal, even animals, were not to eat or drink. They were so full of sorrow for their sin. Their repentance was so thorough. And I want you to see there's a difference between sorrow for sin and sorrow for the consequences of your sin. I think we've seen this in the slew of male celebrities getting caught in sexual harassment and sexual abuse in recent weeks. Uh, many of them have made statements of, of apology and regret 
after they were outed and after they had tried to cover up the things that they tried to cover up for so long. And you have to wonder, are they sorry? Are they sorry for their sin? Are they sorry because of what they did? Or are they sorry sorry because they were caught? Are they sorry because their careers have been tainted? Are they sorry because their careers are over? And, And now the Lord can definitely use the consequences of our sin to wake us up and give us a distaste for sin. Yes and amen. But we must be careful to distinguish and to do the work of ruthless self examination to see if we are sorrowful for our sin or if we are sorrowful for the consequences of our sin. And we can see the fruit of true sorrow for sin in the next aspect of true repentance turning from sin. True repentance always leads to turning from sin. The king's decree in verse 8 says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. It's a turning. Repentance involves a conscious decision and a change in, the, in, in one's life. J.I. Packer put it best, I think, when he said repentance is a change of mind issuing in a change of life. No one who believes the gospel, who trusts in Christ, who loves Christ, will want to continue in the very thing that their Savior was crucified for. No one will want to continue in the very thing that crucified their Lord. Now let me add that on this side of death and this side of glory and this side of Christ's return, repentance is always partial and imperfect. We continue to carry with us our sinful nature. We continue to struggle with sin, but the struggle with sin, the struggle against one's sin, the struggle against one's sin nature is the evidence that true repentance is present. And it's not only a sorrow for sin or a turning from sin, it's also a turning to God, a turning to Christ. We see this again in the decree of the king in verse 8, let them, man or beast, let them call out mightily to God. You even have the cattle, the the herds, the flocks calling out to God. If if you might wonder how that might happen, but uh, if if an animal goes without eating for a day or so, call out to God, they will, and they call out to God. And true repentance always culminates in just that: calling out to God in faith, confessing sin to him, trusting him, depending on him, depending on his grace and his mercy, casting oneself on him completely for rescue and redemption. True repentance always culminates in that, in calling out to the Lord and casting yourself on him completely. This repentance is what God calls all people from every nation of the earth to. He, he, he not just calls the Ninevites to this. He not only calls us, he calls people from every nation of the earth to this kind of act, to this repentance. He commands everyone everywhere to repent. And listen, repentance, uh, this applies to Christians too. Don't, don't just think that you're out of this because you're a Christian, for those of you that are Christians in the room. The, repentance is not just something you do in the beginning of the Christian life. As John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You continue to bear fruit in the Christian life by continuing to repent, by continuing to experience sorrow for sin, by continuing to turn away from sin, by continuing to turn toward God in confession and in childlike trust. As Martin Luther uh, said in his first of all of his 95 theses that he nailed to the castle church door in Wittenberg, he said, Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ in saying repent intended that the whole life of his believers on earth should be one of constant repentance. 
And furthermore, we, we would do well to note here that repentance is a grace given to us by God in the gospel. Our confession of faith puts it like this. Repentance is an evangelical grace. It's a grace given to us by God in the gospel. It is a gift. In Acts eleven eighteen, we see that repentance is not an act of human volition. In Acts 18, we see that God is the one who grants repentance. God grants repentance. God grants repentance. Repentance is not something we have the power to do within ourselves, but God gives us the power to do so. And so repentance is not only God's mandate, it's also God's gift that he gives us along with his message when he effectually calls us. God's mandate is also God's gift, which is such an enormous grace when you think about it. Because God requires us to repent. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And then he goes, oh, you need some help with that? Here's some repentance. He helps us with the repentance. Not only helps us, but he grants it to us completely. And so if you're ever struggling to repent, Christian, if you're ever struggling to repent, you can pray this prayer that Martin Luther used to pray. It's wonderful. He said, Lord, repent me. Repent me, Lord. I I don't have the power to do it in myself. I need you to repent me. I need you to turn me. I need you to give me a sorrow for sin and to turn me away from my sin and to turn me to your face of glory. And you can trust that if you pray a prayer like that, he will answer because he delights to do so. He He is a God who delights to grant repentance. He, in Jonah chapter 1, we've seen this. Jonah chapter 1, he grants repentance to these pagan sailors. In Jonah chapter 2, he grants repentance to Jonah. In Jonah chapter 3, he grants repentance to the Ninevites. And he's done so to countless others. He's granted repentance to Peter who denied him, to Paul who persecuted him, to the, to the thief on the cross who reviled him. He grants repentance to those liberally. He grants repentance liberally. He is the God who delights in granting repentance to those who have sinned against him. And so I tell you this morning, repent and believe the gospel. Ask God to help you, and he will. And if you do, when you turn from your sin and turn to God, you will find a God so full of compassion and mercy, ready to receive you into his welcoming arms. He's a God who welcomes sinners, a God who receives us into his arms graciously, mercifully, compassionately. He's a God full of mercy and compassion, a God who is full of grace and love for sinners. He loves, he loves to forgive sinners. He loves to grant repentance. He loves to welcome sinners like Jonah, like Nineveh, like you, like me. And he longs to make us trophies of his immeasurable grace. That's why he's so committed, so determined to get his message of mercy out to the world. And we believe this message of mercy. May we repent and receive it. And may we be a people who tell the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word has come to us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve to hear your message of mercy. But you have brought it to us nonetheless. And we ask, Lord, for grace to believe it and grace to repent in light of it. And Lord, we ask for grace also to be strengthened to tell others about this message of mercy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.